This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication, are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. Hello, my name is Michael Dempsey. I lead our investments and retirements business here at Mercer. I'm honored to introduce the 50th episode of our Critical Thinking, Critical Issues podcast series. We're very proud of our podcast here at Mercer. And since we launched in 2021, we've had many of our investment colleagues regularly contribute with great feedback from the market. It's a key channel to reach our clients and investors around the world through sharing short but impactful insights on the themes and trends shaping markets and where investments opportunities may lie. I'm excited for the next 50 episodes where we'll continue to provide our market views and debate the important topics that make critical thinking, critical issues podcasts so well regarded by our clients. Thank you. Hi, welcome to this Critical Thinking, Critical Issues podcast on nature. I'm Andrew Lilly, and I work in the sustainable investment team covering Europe. I'm joined by a couple of colleagues, Kate Brett, who is our global intellectual capital lead, who is helping clients integrate um, nature as an ESG theme globally, and Sarah Kagol, who is our head of sustainable investment manager research um, and is looking at the way our um, uh, investment managers we work with are implementing nature considerations into their investment objectives. Um, before I pass to uh, my, my colleagues with a few questions, it's uh, just to um, give a quick summary of our latest thinking in uh, on nature. And we recently produced the paper Nature Alert, where we argued that nature as an ESG theme is exploding into prominence and is where climate change was 10 years ago before the advent of the Paris Agreement. And we think there are significant market developments that have happened last year and that are coming along this year in 2023 that investors should really take note of. But on to some of the uh, developments. And we've had uh, Sarika, who recently attended COP15 in Montreal, the biodiversity conference. Sarika, what was your feeling on COP15 and the resultant global biodiversity framework that came out of it? Thanks, Andy. <clears throat> I think um, the outcomes of COP15 have definitely created some positive feedback in the industry and uh, and, and momentum. Um, we now have four broad and relatively ambitious goals in place um, with 23 specific targets to halt and reverse biodiversity loss by 2023. Now, some of the key takeaways, I think while these goals are non-binding, um, countries will still be required to demonstrate progress against their goals and targets. There are still some debates around the ratchet mechanism and ensuring that governments will be held accountable to progress these deliverables. 
Um, this is something that was key to the Paris Climate Agreement, but not something that is clear with the global biodiversity framework. Um, I think especially given that there's no one key metric that is equivalent to, you know, uh, the CO2 emissions for climate that market participants are now using. Um, so we don't have an equivalent measurement for biodiversity. Now, having said that, I think if you look at the overall goals and the 23 targets within the framework, there's significant positive momentum for the private sector involvement, uh, especially to support the delivery in the post-2020 biodiversity agenda. Um, and there's a lot of potential for action from the financial markets. Uh, I'm just going to highlight a couple of things. If you think about 30 by 30 target. Um, to conserve, manage at least 30% of the world's land and seas by 2030. This is being stated as somewhat the equivalent to the Paris Climate Agreement. I, I do think we can expect some sort of commitment following this from um, market participants, from asset managers, asset owners, uh, service providers and such, you know, similar to those of net zero commitments and initiatives. Now, supporting this, there are various parts of the framework. So, for example, the agreement to require large and transnational companies and financial institutions to monitor, assess, and transparently disclose risks and dependencies around the impact of biodiversity across the value chain. The transparency around these dependencies is crucial, and we've got initiatives such as the TNFD to build the framework that's the task force for uh, nature-related financial disclosures, and then you've got the SBTN or the science-based targets for nature um, that is around the target setting to ensure that alignment of standards uh, that I think will further create the impetus uh, around disclosures. Um, I think if you go beyond the requirement to increase disclosures, there are a lot of learnings to be had from the work that the industry has already done on climate. So again, we've got the TCFD, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, net zero commitments, industry collaborations, all of these you know, are being used as blueprints to take forward with biodiversity. Um, one other thing, I mean, that is key, I think, is that the global biodiversity framework emphasizes the financing piece with commitments to scale up investments in nature-based solutions across asset classes. Now, it has been noted that private capital currently represents only 17% of total investments into nature-based solutions. And we know that climate and biodiversity are linked. And so where net zero goals cannot be achieved without taking biodiversity into account. Um, there is one report that actually states that uh, investments in nature-based solutions will need to double to approximately 384 billion by 2025 and to almost triple by 2030 in order to limit climate change to below 1.5 degrees Celsius, halt biodiversity loss, and achieve land degradation neutrality. So the momentum is there. I think the initiatives are there and investor commitments are starting to take place. So we can see, we can expect to see a lot more happening in this area in the uh, in the near and medium term. Um, great. Yeah, it, it seems as if um, the evolution of nature is just going to uh, continue uh, and, and uh, what a good thing for our planet. Um, it would be remiss of me to mention nature uh, without also mentioning climate change. Of course, global temperature increases, one of the key drivers of loss of biodiversity globally. And um, if you flip that around, um, 
planting trees and biodiversity uh, rich areas um, is one of uh, the key ways we can help to combat climate change with natural capital being seen as a key part of our uh, climate net zero journey. Um, so, Kate, you've been uh, very heavily involved in uh, research around the climate conferences and, and COP27. Do you think nature has received enough attention in these conferences? Um, and, and what are the key outcomes of, of nature that you've seen at the climate conferences? Yes, I think that the short answer would be no. Um, but in saying that, it's certainly um, risen up the agenda for the particularly the last two um, climate COPs, COP26 and, and COP27, which have really recognised that, that climate and nature are effectively the, the sort of two sides of the same coin. Um, I think you've already I kind of highlighted, Sarika, that, that the role of nature in limiting the global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees, which is the, the, the goal of the, the Paris Agreement on climate change, um, that was firmly recognised for the first time at COP26. So this focus on net zero and nature positive really came out um, at the COP26 in Glasgow in 2021. Um, so COP27 did build on those commitments made at, at COP26. Um, and we saw the launch of a deforestation commitment. And again, COP27 saw the launch of the Forest and Climate Leaders Partnership, which again is committing to, to halt and reverse forestry loss and, and land degradation. Um, but I think the reality was that, that COP27 was a bit of a mixed bag in terms of success. Um, so so the, the key success being the agreement of the, the loss and damage fund, um, but ultimately the language on nature and biodiversity loss didn't really um, advance significantly, I don't think, from, from COP26. Um, but as you say, Andy, there does continue to be this increased focus on nature-based solutions and, and particularly the role of the, the private sector in bringing these solutions to fruition. Thanks, Kate. Yes. And and of course, we've had climate change on the agenda for a long time now. Um, I mean, um, at global policy level, it's been a major theme ever since the Kyoto Protocol, which astoundingly is, is now over 30 years ago uh, in 1992. At times, I, I know as um, sustainability professionals, we've been frustrated by the progress which has been glacial um, uh, at times. Nature as an investment theme seems to have really come onto the scene really quite rapidly um, in, in, in comparison to climate change. Sarika mentioned some of these, but um, Kate, what do you think uh, the precedents that nature can draw on as a theme learning from climate policy? And is this likely to mean that nature uh, will evolve more rapidly as an investment priority as compared to climate change? Yeah, so I think, um, like you, you kind of mentioned earlier, Andy, that sort of from an investment perspective, what we're seeing on nature is sort of similar to where we were with climate sort of five, ten years ago. Um, and again, we're, we're 30 years on from um, Kyoto, but we're also eight years on now from the Paris Agreement, which has gone quite quickly um, for people like myself. Um, and so that was the seminal moment on climate. As Sarika's mentioned, we've just had the, the Global Biodiversity Framework which would broadly be the equivalent for nature biodiversity in terms of that top-down commitment from global governments and policymakers, um, albeit the US has not ratified the, the sort of conventional biological diversity as yet. But I think from an investor perspective, we would expect that we would be able to make more rapid progress just because we will be able to apply the learnings that we've made over the last decade on climate change. So, for example, 
when we were first considering climate change from a strategic asset allocation perspective, looking at climate change scenarios, there was no precedent. Whereas now we, we have that precedent of considering climate and, and applying that to, to nature. Um, and some of those parallels that, that we have seen include, as Sarah has mentioned, CCFD has provided a, a blueprint for the task force on nature-related um, financial disclosure. Climate Action 100 Plus has been the, paved the way for Nature Action 100 Plus in terms of stewardship. And again, in terms of setting targets, the Science-Based Targets Initiative for Climate Change is, is sort of paralleled by science-based targets for nature. So I think that the industry has been quicker to say, what did we need for investors to be able to consider climate change and how can we adopt similar um, either methods or frameworks or approaches for, for nature? Um, and similarly for regulatory purposes, I think where we've seen um, the focus on climate, we're also seeing, for example, across Europe, EUSFDR um, refer to nature, biodiversity. And again, I think in the UK, while TNFD um, is expected to remain voluntary in the short term, TCFD obviously initially was voluntary and has become mandatory. And similarly, we would expect that direction of travel to, to be similar for, for nature as well. Um, but I think what's really crucial is that these issues are considered together. So we know that you can't achieve the net zero carbon emissions without the nature-based solutions and, and some progress on climate biodiversity are inextricably linked. And so again, when we're looking at, at climate change scenarios, we need to be able to consider nature and vice versa and the, the impact of, of nature on those climate scenarios or the impact of, of climate scenarios um, on nature. And I, I think when we're looking at investment portfolios, again, when we're looking at how a, a portfolio is positioned for climate transition, we also need to consider that exposure to, to biodiversity as well. So I think from our perspective, key over the next few years, as, as data becomes more available, we'll be able, well, we'll be bringing both climate and nature related data sets together. And Sarika, from the managers uh, that you're speaking to, um, are they finding it easier to incorporate nature into their investment objectives, having the experience of climate change to draw from? Um, I think in some cases, yes. Uh, and in others, this is unique enough that it is still very much a learning curve um, and qualitative in nature as the tools and the data metrics continue to develop. Um, I think it's important to note that this is still a very nascent conversation across the investment industries. Um, and the majority of asset managers are not doing anything above and beyond what they already have in place in terms of their current ESG processes. So, for example, where managers are using third-party ESG data and the ESG scores of these data providers, this is the extent to which biodiversity is being integrated. So, it's very much dependent on how much um, these data providers have uh, biodiversity integrated into their um, into their scores. And again, we know all the challenges around how the scores are developed, the materiality, the subjectivity. So there is still, you know, there's there's quite a lot that needs to be done there. Um, but where asset managers are being proactive, there seems to be some good momentum. Um, and in some cases, these managers are very much drawing on the work that they've done on climate where relevant to emulate, um, you know, uh, the focus on biodiversity. Um, and similarly, the various climate-focused initiatives that have been launched around building frameworks, collaborations, and data metrics, those are being referenced for biodiversity. And managers are very much working collaboratively, in some cases, to develop methodologies that are aligned with these broader frameworks, such as the TNFDs or the, the SBTN. 
Now, as their understanding around the risks of biodiversity loss and the contribution of ecosystem services continues to develop, we can see managers are also expanding their current framework to incorporate nature-related uh, assessments into the process. Um, keep in mind that nature is very much location-specific, and so looking for the uh, specific location data and regional exposure are not easy. Uh, the data is just not available and not necessarily disclosed by companies or issuers, so this is very much a challenge in analyzing nature-related risks. Um, and this is where managers are very much aiming to engage with companies to access some of this data and then to assess the, the potential impacts. Now, there are managers that are developing their own proprietary ESG ratings for companies based on financially material ESG issues. And so in these cases, there is some emphasis on the extent to which biodiversity is expected to impact the company fundamentals. Um, but again, it's very early stages. And I think what's key here is engagement. Um, as part of the integration work and probably a better starting point as managers develop better understanding of the key issues, um, the sectors that are most impacted and, uh, you know, the, the material uh, nature related uh, risks that, um, you know, that they need to be thinking about. Um, I think in terms of how they're engaging, they're prioritizing their efforts, probably in the first instance, looking to identify those sectors that are most exposed to biodiversity risk. So if you think about those five key drivers of biodiversity loss that are, are uh, widely known, right? One, change in land and sea use, um, invasive alien species, pollutions, climate change, and overexploitation of organisms, right? This is how investors are, are aiming or tending to um, uh, sort of categorize uh, and frame their work around the risks and opportunities and using that to kind of develop an engagement agenda. Now, there's also um, the investment piece, so investing in the solutions. And here there is a strong connection between biodiversity and broader environmental solutions. So we've been researching uh, investment strategies within the environmental markets uh, for a number of years now. And, you know, biodiversity strategies, I think thinking in the listed space, um, have really come up in the last couple of years or so. So just looking at some of the um, sort of overlap between environmental and, and biodiversity specific strategies, there is a reasonable overlap, you know, which is essentially, you know, environmental markets are covering some of these biodiversity themes already. Um, you know, but I think in terms of how managers are approaching biodiversity as an investment theme, this is where transition is playing a key part. And this is where ideas are emerging that really focus on transition leaders. So companies that are very much working actively across their supply chain to preserve biodiversity, in addition to looking at the, um, the solutions providers. Now, again, thinking about those key drivers of biodiversity loss, there's a lot of overlap between those drivers and some of the environmental solutions that are already in place. So, you know, if you think about changing use of sea and land, some of the ideas that we've come across are things like food waste reduction, plant-based proteins, alternative feeds. Um, and these are ideas that managers have already been covering for a number of years. You know, same thing, climate change, not surprisingly, uh, that idea is, is you know, covered quite broadly um, and has been for a while. So there's a lot of overlap. And so, you know, this is a natural extension then to what managers are already doing. I think one thing we have noted, though, is that the full scale of solutions that are required to address biodiversity are not yet there. So 
at the moment, what managers are able to do is identifying, they are identifying the investable solutions that focus on reducing the pressure on biodiversity, but the opportunity set for investing in publicly listed companies that really focus on restoration of nature, that's quite uh, sparse at the moment. But this is where then the private markets is showing some interesting new ideas coming out around natural capital and biodiversity, um, you know, which are likely to have a clear impact. Um, you know, we've seen some ideas focused on protection, such as, uh, you know, of natural forests, land management, um, restoration of degraded landscapes, and then ideas such as sustainable oceans. Um, so investors, you know, are those that are interested can get a clear steer on the types of impact they want to achieve um, with the potential of then creating that further positive impact up the supply chain or the value chain, you know, if you think about sort of the between the public and the private markets. Thanks, Erica. And and you um, did uh, mention uh, briefly that um, elephant in the room, which is uh, the quantification of nature risks and impacts, um, that about the uh, data set surrounding nature and biodiversity. Now, um, as, as you said, nature is a notoriously hard thing to um, monitor and quantify. There is different metrics related to water quality, to the to oceans, to species abundance, to, to land use. What do you see in terms of the asset manager community trying to um, bridge these complexities and any, any trends that you're seeing in quantifying nature risks? I think it's too early to say that there's any common approach that's emerging. Um, there's still a lot of disparity in terms of the approaches that the relatively few managers are taking. But again, these are these managers that are being proactive. They're very much involved in the various investor and collaborative initiatives. They are very much providing their input and, and um, consultations to you know the shaping of. Um, potential regulations that are coming through. So they're very much at the leading edge in terms of new ideas that are coming out. And even those that are going out partnering amongst themselves and with other data providers to develop methodologies are ensuring that these are aligned to some of the scientific um, uh, background and, um, and and the frameworks, you know, that are being broadly uh, developed, you know, again, with things like the TNFD and the SBTN. So there's, you know, there's nothing that is absolutely specific. Um, from, from a solutions point of view, um, you know, we've seen managers that are continuing to focus on climate metrics. So again, thinking about portfolio carbon measures, temperature alignment to 1.5 degrees, you know, that link again between biodiversity and climate um, kind of coming through. And then they're also looking at other individual metrics around things like water usage, water savings, waste recycled, food waste avoided, things like that. Um, I think it's important to note that, you know, again, that data availability is not as high as what you've seen for carbon or climate metrics, but it is a starting point, um, you know, and, and it allows managers then, you know, that engagement piece comes in quite strongly then just in terms of identifying um, where there are data gaps going back to the GBF, the Global Biodiversity Framework, and that focus on um, increased transparency, you know, this has again created that impetus for managers to engage with companies to push them to, you know, start thinking about and disclosing um, uh, data around um, their biodiversity metrics. Great. Thanks. Yeah, it seems to be um, something that uh, should emerge 
pretty soon uh, in line with uh, TNFD recommendations. So uh, let's watch this space on uh, the nature metrics. Um, Kate, I'd, I'd quite like to ask you this question um, and, and delve a little deeper in it because you already mentioned the TCFD and TNFD linkage. Um, and TCFD, the uh, Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, um, has become certainly best practice, um, if not a hygiene factor, for climate disclosures globally. Do you see uh, TNFD rising to this same level of global significance? Um, yes, I do. I think ultimately it will be just as significant. And I, I also think they'll be increasingly aligned over the coming years. So, again, they'll be um, inextricably linked. I don't think yeah, you can have disclosure and reporting on, on climate without looking at, at nature. And I, I guess Sarek has also highlighted um Biodiversity data is even more complex than, than what we've had on climate. And we, we know how long um, and how difficult it has been to, to get good, um, reliable quality data on climate. And we know that even those data sets still aren't there fully yet. So um, I think TNFD will have this absolutely crucial role for investors and other financial market participants to have comparable and consistent data to, to base decisions on. Um, See, so yeah, I think it will be absolutely critical ensuring that the industry adopts these consistent metrics and reporting. And again, I think we will go through that that same trend of um, what starts as voluntary will increasingly become mandatory in time. And, and I think, again, on climate, we've seen a lot of effort to, to have consistency across data, so different reporting initiatives collaborating and working together. I think we will have the same on nature. I think people will realise that... Um, it will be an industry issue to, to solve collectively. Um, and yeah, I suspect over the, the coming years, we will see the, the, the kind of huge focus that we've had on, on data and climate. It also includes nature as well. Um, and the two will be considered concurrently and, and together. Right, okay, well, um, a, a lot of interesting themes there. Um, I, I think um, drawing it all together, uh, we can see that um, there is a lot going on in this space and a lot to unpick. There is the um, emergence of so many new um, investor initiatives and um, also the global biodiversity framework, which um, it, it remains to be seen how companies and also countries will will apply it in their uh, in their biodiversity plans. Um, and then there's the um, uh, emergence of natural capital as an investment theme, which Sarika has talked about, not just uh, to help investors with their climate objectives, although that's uh, a, a huge area of development, but also new methods for how managers are measuring nature risks, but also nature positivity. So um, our, our, our main messages for investors are that nature and biodiversity considerations are likely to become increasingly financially material. And um, don't wait for these changes to come in. Be proactive rather than reactive so you can get ahead of this rapid rate of evolution. Just to close, I'd like to thank very much our speakers, uh, Sarika and Kate, for sharing their insights. And uh, it's been a pleasure doing this podcast. <laughs>